This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers. This episode is a summary episode of everything we've looked at so far in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, The reasons I'm doing this are numerous. First, I want to remind you of what we've seen so far before we move on. Second, uh, I want to provide the big picture overview of what we've seen. We've been going pretty slow through the Bible, through Genesis 1, and sometimes it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. And while I hope you have appreciated my detailed explanations of the individual verses, and while I believe that's important for the study of Scripture, we really don't want to miss the overall theme and focus, the big picture idea of what we're looking at. So I'm going to provide that in this episode as well. Third, uh, new listeners. If you're a new listener or there's someone who you have been recommending that they listen to this and they go and they look and they say, oh my word, 23 episodes so far. That's just too much of a commitment. I can't do that. Look, they can get up to speed or if you're new, you can get up to speed simply by listening to this episode. I'm going to summarize everything we've seen. So you don't need to go listen. Well, you don't necessarily need to go listen to those other three, 23 podcast episodes. Uh, You might want to, based on some of the things we learned today, but uh, you don't have to. This this summary episode will basically get you up to speed so you can pick up with us and follow along as we dive further into Genesis chapter 2 next week. Uh, And fourth, this is the final reason I'm doing this, uh, even if you have listened to all the other episodes, if you've been with me from the very beginning and listened to them all, first of all, thank you very much. I really appreciate you listening to all those. That is quite a commitment. Uh, but if you, you might still want to listen to this episode because in this episode, I basically tie everything together. All the loose strands are tied together, sort of woven together into showing you the, the main theme, the big idea of what we've looked at so far. Uh, this big overall truth is really going to help sort of tie it all together to bring you into what we're going to begin to see next in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. And I'm pretty excited about some of the things I have to share with you. Some of it's brand new and uh, even in the review. So stick with me. We'll be back in just a second. Um, Before we do that, this episode of the One Verse Podcast is brought to you by my newsletter, my email newsletter. If you haven't joined me there, I I really invite you to do that. You can go to redeeminggod.com slash subscribe. I'm not going to spam you, or I definitely would never, ever, ever sell your email or anything like that. Look, this is just a way for me to keep in contact with you and for you to keep in contact with me. So uh, you can decide to get my daily or my blog post, the full length. I only put out one or two a week, so that's not going to be a whole lot. And then you can also get a weekly summary if you want. But every once in a while, I send out sort of regular updates about what I'm doing, what I'm writing. And I think, as I mentioned in the last week's episode, I've got eight books I'm trying to put out. One of them is going to be a book on Genesis chapter one. So if you want to get those sorts of updates, just go to redeeminggod.com slash subscribe. Put in your email address and you will be subscribed. Get all future updates that way. Okay, so let's dive into our summary of Genesis chapter one today. And to do that, let me ask you a few questions. When you think of the cross, what is it you think of? 
Well, the death of Jesus, of course, right? When you think of Easter, what is it you think of? The resurrection of Jesus, of course. (laughs) When you think of Christmas, what is it you think of? Well, the birth of Jesus, of course. Uh, If I were to start talking to you about the Son of God, who is it that you would think of? Hopefully, Jesus Christ, of course. If I invite you to read the Gospels, where would you go to read these? Well, to the four Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, of course. But did you know that if I spoke of any of those things 2,000 years ago, the people back then would have understood them much, much differently than you or I do today? Obviously, it depends on you know where I would have been in the world, what language they were speaking, and so on. But uh, if I'd been in Israel, if you'd been in Israel, for example, and had spoken of the cross, or the Gospels, or the Son of God, they would have understood those terms much, much differently than you or I do today. Um, they would have thought of the cross, for example, as a violent method of torture and death by which the Roman Empire killed their enemies and brought fear to those they had conquered. Back then, the cross was only and always a symbol of pure evil, pure hate and violence. Similarly, if we talked about the Gospels, uh, people back then would have thought about the Caesar Gospels. Did you know these existed? Yes, there were Caesar's Gospels, uh, one for each Caesar, typically, sometimes multiple ones for each Caesar. And these were, were records, stories, accounts of the birth, life, and death of the Roman emperors. These Caesar Gospels talked about things like the miraculous events that surrounded the birth of the emperor. Uh, The miracles, the victories in war, the signs, even some of the wise things that this Caesar had said and done and accomplished in his life. Uh, Often, these Caesar Gospels, sometimes these Caesar Gospels, would conclude with how, because of what a great life the Caesar had lived and how well he had ruled, he was adopted into the pantheon of the gods as one of their own. And frequently, as part of these Caesar Gospels, the Caesar would be called, be named, be titled, given the title, the Son of God. Back then, if you spoke of the Son of God, they would think of the Caesar. Uh, some Caesars, in fact, claimed that they were the progeny, the son of a human mother and a divine father, a god, a father who was one of the gods. And so they literally were a son of God. Uh, others taught, no, I was just born like a human, but because of how great I lived, because of how well I ruled, uh, the, the gods were so impressed with me that they adopted me, this is what some of the Caesars would say, adopted me into their family, and so I became a son of God. All right, and so, um, you know, just those three things there. When we think of the cross, or the gospel accounts, or the title, the son of God, we don't even think of any of those things. Most of us aren't even aware of them. Uh, we think only of Jesus Christ. Now, the same is true of Christmas and Easter. I mentioned those earlier. The term Christmas would not have been understood to people back then, the the actual term. Uh, But if you had gone into various parts of the Roman Empire and talked about the practice of cutting down trees and decorating them and passing out presents and singing songs, baking cookies, lighting candles on the darkest night of the year, everyone would have recognized immediately that you were talking about 
the pagan holiday of Saturnalia. Other places in the Roman Empire, Northern Europe, refer to it as Yule. Sometimes we even call it Yule today. I wrote about all this, by the way, in my book, Christmas Redemption, if you're curious to read more about that. Christmas Redemption is my book. Uh, But the same is true of Easter. If you mention Easter, in fact, if you ever wondered, where did Easter come from? I'm about to tell you. Uh, Easter itself is not a biblical word. If you mention Easter to people thousands of years ago and you describe the holiday about celebration of new life, new growth, and if you happen to mention bunnies and eggs and or maybe even the resurrection of a God, this is the holiday which we celebrate the resurrection of our God, well, they would have understood that you were talking about the holiday of Ishtar, Easter, Ishtar. She was the goddess of fertility and resurrection. Uh, Ishtar, the holiday of Ishtar, celebrated how she resurrected her divine son, Tammuz, from death. Hmm. (laughs) Are you starting to see a pattern here? Let me give you one more example. If I started talking to you about creation, what would you think I was referring to? Well, obviously, that the God of the Bible created the world in seven days. Of course. (laughs) But if I went back in time, uh, farther back than Jesus, farther back than the church, farther back, let's say to the days of Moses, or even prior to Moses, and went around talking to people about creation, most people back then would not think about how the God of the Bible, Yahweh, had created the world in seven days. Instead, depending on where I was and who I was talking to, some people might think about how The Babylonian god, Marduk, went to war with the rebellious goddess Tiamat, and in defeating her, cut her body in half, and from the parts of her body, created the heavens and the earth, and humankind, and and everything else in the universe. Uh, Or, if I was in Egypt, they might think about how the god Amun moved over the waters until the light of Atum appeared. And then the heavenly sky ocean god, Newt, was separated from the earthly ocean below. And the ground god, Geb, was brought forth from the ocean below. And after this, humanity was created by the tears of Atum. And the sun, as the image of Ra, was created to rule the world. That would be some of the things that the Egyptian people would tell you if you asked them about creation. So, again, you can sort of see the pattern. Just as very few people today know about the Caesar Gospels or how the Roman emperors referred to themselves as the Son of God, so also very few people today know about all the other religious creation accounts that were common in the days of Moses when he wrote Genesis chapter 1. So what happened Why is it that today, when we talk about the cross, or the Son of God, or the Gospels, or Easter, or Christmas, or the creation of the world, we don't think about evil and violence and death and Roman emperors and pagan deities or Canaanite or Babylonian or Egyptian religions? Why is that? Why do we only think about Jesus Christ? And not just Christians, but everybody. Well, I'll tell you what has happened. It's called redemption. Redemption. 
Redemption is when you buy back something that used to belong to you, but which now has somehow been sold or given away to someone else. Um, it's often used like in a pawn shop. You you take an item of yours down to a local pawn shop, and they will, if it has any value, buy it from you and give you a ticket or a redemption certificate. It allows you to buy your item back from the pawn shop within a certain amount of time. And if that time period expires, then they um, basically own your item and can sell it to somebody else. But before that time expires, if you go down and buy your item back from the pawn shop, you know, before your ticket expires, then you have redeemed your item from the pawn shop. You bought it back. A lot of times in ancient in the ancient world, the term redemption was used about buying a slave from the slave market and then setting it free. Uh, and, and who would do that? Well, usually the people who would do that might be a master who, for some reason, was generous and kind and hard and had uh, developed a close relationship with a certain slave. And uh, maybe in hard times, the slave had been sold or who knows what, but uh, they found the slave and they bought it back and then they set it free. Or maybe they would just go down to the the slave owner place and give them a certificate of freedom or something that would also be considered redemption. Maybe it was a family member. They had, uh, because of a debt, had had to sell one of their children into slavery. And so now they had paid off their debts and went and found where their child or their wife or whoever it was had been sold into slavery and bought them back. Or maybe their son had been captured in war. And so they went and found where their son was being sold into slavery, bought him back and set him free. Okay, the point is they bought back something they had owned and then set it free. They redeemed their slave, the loved one, from slavery. All right, that is redemption. Uh, it's, it's based on the concepts of love, uh, previous ownership, helping the item or person that is redeemed return to the purpose or goal for which it was originally intended. And that is what is exactly going on all over the Bible. The Bible is full of redemption. In fact, the more I study Scripture, the more convinced I become that Redemption is one of the central themes in the Bible. Now, I doubt that you disagree with that. In fact, most Christians talk and sing and and teach about redemption all the time. But usually, when we talk and sing and teach and write about redemption, we're usually referring to the redemption of humans, how God redeemed humans from uh, slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Uh, And that certainly is a major topic of redemption. No argument for me on that. Uh, But I'm convinced from Scripture and from life that Humans are by no means the only thing that God redeems. In fact, I've already shown you a couple other things that God redeems. Uh, He's redeemed the cross. We no longer think of it as an instrument or tool or symbol of death and evil and violence. He's redeemed the title, the Gospels. We no longer think of Caesar Gospels. He's redeemed the title, Son of God. We no longer think of Caesars for that either. We think of Jesus. He's redeemed the holidays of Christmas and Easter. Uh, and, And these are all just a tip of the iceberg when it comes to redemption in the Bible. Anyway, this is also the point of Genesis 1. Just as God has redeemed people, crosses, titles, holidays, God also redeems religion. Uh, As I've said over and over in our studies of Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is not a scientific record of how God created the world. When we view it that way, we completely miss the point of what Genesis 1 is all about. It can't be science. We've seen that because there's just too many problems with how the text is written for it to be a scientifically accurate account. However, it is a theologically accurate account. It's very true theologically. Uh, And this is especially true when we see how Moses is comparing and contrasting Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
with all the other gods who were commonly worshipped in his day, such as the gods of uh, Babylon, Egypt, and Canaan. And as we've seen in this detailed study of Genesis 1, nearly every phrase of every verse throughout this creation account has some sort of uh, parallel idea or phrase or belief or practice that was common among the Babylonian, Egyptian, and Canaanite religions. Uh, if you haven't listened to some of those, or if you did and you just need a reminder, let me, let me review some of these, some of these for you. Uh, in Genesis 1-2, Moses writes about the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep. You may recall that the deep is the Hebrew word tahom, uh, which is the equivalent to the Babylonian goddess Tiamat in, in the Babylonian language. Uh, so the goddess, uh, the Tiamat was the goddess of the deep, the, 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 the deep sea, the, the chaotic ocean. Okay, so um, there's that, that parallel there. In Genesis 1, 6-8, God separates the waters below from the waters above. Uh, that also happened in the Babylonian accounts. Uh, I hinted at it earlier. God, the god Marduk went to war against Tiamat, and he defeated her, and then he cut her body in half. She was water, this watery goddess. And so the waters below are, are separated from the waters above, and um, from her, Marduk creates everything else from her body, her, her separated, the separated waters. Uh, in Genesis 1, 9-10, God creates the dry ground and gathers the waters below into seas. Uh, this is very similar to the Egyptian creation accounts, where the sky goddess, Nut, is separated from the earth god, Geb. Uh, and also, by the way, when God names the waters below, when he names them seas, uh, he uses the word Hebrew word yamim, uh, which is the plural form of the word yam. Uh, yam was a Canaanite sea god. All right, uh, moving on, Genesis 1, 11 through 13. This is where God creates the grass, the seeds, and the fruit trees. Uh, in this is where Moses takes a jab at the Canaanite Baal cycle. We read a lot about Baal a lot in the Bible. Uh, the Baal cycle is the Canaanite belief that every year the god Baal is captured by Mot, which is the god of death. Uh, and uh, Mot carries Baal down into the sea, into Yom, the sea god. Baal's lover, then, Anat, comes and rescues him, and they wage war against Mot and Yom and gain power over Yom and Mot. And what they do is they harness the power of the sea, the water, and they grind up the body of Mot, death. And then they scatter Mot's body all over the earth and water it with the power of the sea, with Yom. Uh, and this is what causes the plants and trees to sprout and grow in the spring and summer. And then when the fall comes, because the seed has grown and become stronger, Mot gains power and um, then he eventually is able to defeat Baal. And that brings winter and, and the cycle begins all over, over again. Uh, basically, in Gen writing Genesis 1, 11-13, Moses is using similar ideas and terminology, but in a way that takes all glory away from Baal and gives it to God alone, uh, and in a way that is completely nonviolent. All of this, you recognize as we go along, is completely nonviolent, unlike all the other religions in that day. Uh, in day four, then, God creates the lights of the sky. He created the light earlier in day one, but now he fills it in, in uh, day four. And in this, Moses is taking a jab at the popular moon gods and sun gods of the Canaanites, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. Then on day five, Moses shows uh, that even the great sea monsters of the ancient religious mythology were created by God and were under God's control and dominion. 
The pinnacle of the creation account is the creation of mankind on day six. And this is where Moses reverses the religious idea that humans were just created to serve the gods and shows instead that humans are actually placed in the position of gods. We're not gods. Moses is very careful. We're not gods, but uh, we're placed in the position that other religions had the gods. Uh, And uh, by by doing that, Moses is showing that um, we are enabled and invited by God to work along with him and partner with him in ruling this world. And that's also what day seven turns out to be about, which we saw in our study of Genesis 2, 1 through 3. When God rested from what he had done, what this really was, was not God ceasing all activity, but was actually him resting, coming to his resting place within the temple, within the creation that he had made for himself, and so that the temple was now considered open for business, and the real work of running this world could now begin. And that's when God invited us to participate in ruling this world with him. Anyway, all of that's a quick review of some of what we learned in our studies of Genesis 1. You can go back and listen to some of the episodes on the various days if you want to learn more. But when Moses wrote his creation account, he is purposefully using imagery and ideas that were quite common in his day. Beginning with Genesis 1-1, going all the way through Genesis 2-3, Moses uh, has drawn on the images, the stories, the theology, the practices, uh, the beliefs, the rituals, uh, the, the ceremonies, the legends of these other religions, and using similar terminology and ideas He writes a creation account that brings glory to Yahweh alone. What this means is that Genesis 1 is best read and understood as a poetic, uh, theological polemic against the religions that the Israelites would have known about in their day. Uh, They'd just come out of Egypt, and so we're familiar with the Egyptian religion. They were going into Canaan, and so we had questions about what they were going to face there. And the entire religion had been influenced by the Babylonian religion. And so Moses wanted to show the Israelites that Yahweh alone was God and that they should worship him alone because he was better and superior and more lovely than the gods of these other religions. Now, none of this means, of course, none of this means, of course, that God did not, in fact, create the universe. I believe he did. Uh, What it does mean, though, is that if we try to use the theology, the beautiful poetry of Genesis 1, to refute the scientific theory of evolution, that's a little bit like trying to use a Leonardo da Vinci masterpiece to prove or or disprove, whatever, (laughs) Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, I mean... (laughs) You might be able to make some sort of convoluted argument from the painting to relativity, but nobody's going to be convinced by any such argument. Uh, And all you've really done is shown that you really don't know much of anything about either art or science. Okay, and that's what happens when we try to use Genesis 1 to disprove evolution. It's much better to recognize the art, the da Vinci masterpiece for what it is, and appreciate the art as art. Only then can you discover its real significance. And that's the same with Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is this beautiful, poetic, artistic, theological masterpiece. And if we try to use it to disprove evolution, well, it's not going to convince anyone. And what we're really doing is missing out on the real truth of Genesis 1. The life-transforming truths about the character and nature of God, the goals and purpose of creation, and the significance of all mankind. 
And chief among these truths that we'll miss out on is this revolutionary, groundbreaking idea that God is a God of redemption. In this text, Moses takes some of the beliefs and practices of pagan religion and shows how these are fulfilled in God alone. I want to make this very clear. Genesis 1 is not primarily about Moses condemning these other religious creation accounts as sinful, heretical, or false. But rather, what Moses is doing is very surprising, is affirming some of the truths and ideas they contain. But, and here's the key, he affirms them in a way that directs people away from the worship of Marduk, of Ra, or Baal, and toward Yahweh instead. Uh, Moses, he, he isn't necessarily refuting these other religions as much as he is redeeming them. He's buying them back and pointing them to their original purpose and goal. Now, look, I believe that what is at the heart of most religion in the world is the good and godly desire to learn about God and worship Him, right? You look at most religions, that's what people are trying to do. But, since we're sinful, since we're fallen, we don't really know much about God or what He wants from us, and so what we do is we come up with all these strange stories and laws and rituals, ceremonies that we think will you know, cause and force and manipulate the gods to love us, accept us, protect us, provide for us, whatever it is that they're trying to do by practicing their religion. But in Genesis 1 and through the writings of Moses, God comes along and starts to sort it all out. He doesn't just condemn it all. No. He invites us into a conversation with him where he sorts through what we believe and what we do. Yeah, some of it he tosses out. He says, yeah, you don't need this. You don't need to do that. Uh, Stop doing that. Stop believing that. Other things he keeps and says, yeah, this is good. This is me. This points to me. That's fine. Keep that. And then with what is left, it's sort of a mixture of good and bad. He redeems that. The end result is something beautiful and glorious, just like what we have in the Gospels and in the rest of the Bible. So let me invite you to stop using Genesis 1 as an argument against evolution, and and start using Genesis 1 for the purpose for which it was intended. Uh, Let Genesis 1 challenge some of your religious beliefs and ideas about God, about yourself, about this world, about your place in this world. Let Genesis 1 invite you into a deeper relationship with the loving God, into a deeper enjoyment of this created world, which God has given to us. Ultimately, let Genesis 1 begin the work of redemption in you. As we move on from here and continue our journey through the rest of Scripture, let God begin to sort through your life, your history, your beliefs, your practices, and let Him start to bring beauty from the ashes and peace from the pain. So that's the summary of Genesis chapter 1. I really hope that if you haven't listened to some of the earlier episodes, what we've seen today encourages you to go back and listen to some of those. Uh, And if you have listened to all of those episodes in Genesis chapter 1, it sort of ties it all together and 
launches us into our study next week when we will pick back up with Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And as one final note, don't forget, if you haven't done so already, go over to redeeminggod.com slash subscribe and put your email in to get my newsletter updates so that when the book on Genesis 1 comes out, you will be one of the first to hear about it. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week when we pick back up our study of Genesis by looking at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. See you then!